welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Hey there, just me. You're about to listen to another installment of our summer series, which is going to record the entire executive summary report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Obviously, there is a content warning while engaging with this material, and we ask that you please take care. You're going to hear some different voices. Some are new, and some you've heard before. And we give a heartfelt thank you so much to everyone who rallied to record this project with us. Be sure to check the description for relevant links and page numbers, so you can actively reference the report while you're listening if need be. And without any further ado, we present to you the Executive Summary Report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Treaties honoring the past, and negotiating the future. It is important for all Canadians to understand that without treaties, Canada would have no legitimacy as a nation. Treaties between Indigenous nations and the Crown establish the legal and constitutional foundation of this country. Elder Fred Kelly emphasized that treaty-making and Aboriginal people's ways of resolving conflict must be central to reconciliation. He said, there are those who believe that a generic reconciliation process is a Western-based concept to be imposed on the Aboriginal peoples without regard to their own traditional practices of restoring personal and collective peace and harmony. We must therefore insist that the Aboriginal peoples have meaningful participation in the design, administration, and evaluation of the reconciliation process so that it is based on their local culture and language. If reconciliation is to be real and meaningful in Canada, it must embrace the inherent right of self-determination through self-government envisioned in the treaties. Where government refuses to implement Aboriginal rights and the original spirit and intent of the treaties, the citizens of Canada must take direct action to forcefully persuade its leadership. Treaties and memoranda of agreement are simply the stage-setting mechanisms for reconciliation. There must be action. All Canadians have treaty rights. It is upon these rights and obligations that our relationship is founded. If Canada's past is a cautionary tale about what not to do, it also holds a more constructive history lesson for the future. The treaties are a model for how Canadians, as diverse peoples, can live respectfully and peacefully together on these lands we now share. The Royal Proclamation of 1763 and Treaty of Niagara, 1764. The history of treaty-making in Canada is contentious. Aboriginal peoples and the Crown have interpreted the spirit and intent of the treaties quite differently. Generally, government officials have viewed the treaties as legal mechanisms by which Aboriginal peoples ceded and surrendered their lands to the Crown. In contrast, First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people understand treaties as sacred obligation that commits both parties to maintain respectful relationships and share land and resources equitably. Indigenous peoples have kept the history and ongoing relevance of the treaties alive in their own oral histories and legal traditions. Without their perspectives on the history of treaty making, Canadians only know one side of the country's history. This story cannot simply be told as the story of how Crown officials unilaterally imposed treaties on Aboriginal peoples. 
They were also active participants in treaty negotiations. The history and interpretation of treaties and the Aboriginal-Crown relationship as told by Indigenous peoples enriches and informs our understanding of why we are all treaty people. This is evident, for example, in the story of the Royal Proclamation of 1763 and its relationship to the Treaty of Niagara in 1764. The Royal Proclamation, which was issued by colonial officials, tells only half this story. On October 7, 1763, King George III issued a royal proclamation by which the British Crown recognized the legal and constitutional rights of Aboriginal peoples in Canada. In the Royal Proclamation of 1763, the British declared that all lands west of the established colonies belonged to Aboriginal peoples and that only the Crown could legally acquire these lands by negotiating treaties. At a time when Aboriginal peoples still held considerable power and conflicts with settlers were increasing, British officials sought to establish a distinct geographical area that would remain under the jurisdiction of Indigenous nations until treaties were negotiated. Anishinaabe legal scholar John Burroughs notes that the Royal Proclamation can be fully understood only in relation to the Treaty of Niagara in which the terms of the proclamation were ratified by Indigenous nations in 1764. As Boros explains, the Indigenous leaders who negotiated the Treaty of Niagara with the Crown did so with the understanding that they would remain free and self-determining peoples. Boros observes, the proclamation uncomfortably straddled the contradictory aspirations of the Crown and First Nations when its wording recognized Aboriginal rights to land by outlining a policy that was designed to extinguish these rights. The different objectives that First Nations and the Crown had in the formulation of the principles surrounding the proclamation is the reason for the different visions embedded within its text. Britain was attempting to secure territory and jurisdiction through the proclamation, while First Nations were concerned with preserving their lands and sovereignty. The Royal Proclamation was ratified by over 2,000 Indigenous leaders who had gathered at Niagara in the summer of 1764 to make a treaty with the Crown. The treaty negotiations, like earlier trade and peace and friendship treaties, were conducted in accordance with Indigenous law and diplomatic protocol. John Boros presents evidence that Aboriginal peoples, some 54 years after the Treaty of Niagara was negotiated and ratified, still remembered the promises that were made by the Crown. In 1818, a Crown representative, Captain Thomas G. Anderson, gave the following account of a meeting between Anishinaabe peoples and the Crown at Drummond Island in Lake Huron. The chiefs did decamp, laying down a broad wampum belt made in 1764. Orkata, an Anishinaabe speaker, holding the belt of 1764 in his hand, said, Father, this my ancestors received from our father, Sir W. Johnson. You sent word to all your red children to assemble at the crooked place, Niagara. They heard your voice, obeyed the message, and the next summer you met at the place, and then laid this belt on a mat and said, Children, you must all touch this belt of peace. I touch it myself, that we may all be brethren united, and hope our friendship will never cease. I will call you my children, will send warmth, presents to your country, and your families shall never be in want. Look towards the rising sun. 
My nation is as brilliant as it is, and its word cannot be violated. Father, your words were true. All you promised came to pass. On giving us a belt of peace, you said, If you should ever require my assistance, send this belt, and my hand will immediately stretch forth to assist you. Here the speaker laid down the belt. Over the years, Indigenous leaders involved in treaty negotiations not only used wampum belts to recount the Treaty of Niagara, but also presented the original copies of the Royal Proclamation to a government officials. In 1847, a colonial official reported, The subsequent proclamation of His Majesty George III, issued in 1763, furnished them with a fresh guarantee for the possession of their hunting grounds and the protection of the crown. This document the Indians look upon as their charter. They have preserved a copy of it to the present time and have referred to it on several occasions in the representations to government. On October 7, 2013, Canada marked the 250th anniversary of the Royal Proclamation of 1763. The Governor-General of Canada, His Excellency the Right Honourable David Johnston, spoke about the proclamation's importance. This extraordinary document is a part of the legal foundation of Canada. It is enshrined in the Constitution Act of 1982, and it sets out a framework of values or principles that have given us a navigational map over the course of the past two and a half centuries. Its guiding principles of peace, fairness, and respect established the tradition of treaty-making, laid the basis for recognition of First Nations' rights, and defined the relationship between First Nations' peoples and the Crown. All history reverberates through the ages, but the Royal Proclamation is uniquely alive in the present day. Not only is it a living constitutional document, its principles are of great relevance to our situation today in 2013 and to our shared future. Without a doubt, we have faced and are facing challenges, and we might have hard work to do on the road to reconciliation, but it is a road we must travel together. In the modern time, the successful conclusion of comprehensive land claim agreements are an example of the principles of the Royal Proclamation in action. Across the country, Indigenous peoples also commemorated the anniversary, calling on Canadians to honour the spirit and intent of the Royal Proclamation. In British Columbia, where very few treaties were signed, the First Nations Summit leaders issued a statement reminding Canadians that the principles set out in the proclamation were still relevant to present-day Canada. They said, With Confederation, the First Nations Crown relationship has regrettably been guided by federal control under the constraints of the Indian Act, not by the principles articulated in the proclamation. The time has arrived for all Canadians to now move into an era of recognition and reconciliation between First Nations and the Crown. Although there is general recognition of Aboriginal title and rights, far too often these rights exist without an effective remedy. There are many solutions that have the potential of moving us to where we need to be. Such solutions include the negotiation of modern-day treaties, agreement and other arrangements, consistent with the principles of the proclamation. Across the river from the Parliament buildings in Ottawa that October, I don't know more supporters gathered in Gatineau, Quebec, at the Canadian Museum of Civilization to commemorate the Royal Proclamation as a part of a national and international day of action. One of the organizers, 
Clayton Thomas Mueller, said, We are using this founding document of this country and its anniversary to usher in a new era of reconciliation of Canada's shameful colonial history to turn around centuries of neglect and abuse of our sacred and diverse nations. In Toronto, the focus was on Gus Wenta, or two-row wampum treaty belt, used by the Mohawk in treaty negotiations with colonial European officials. As Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people gathered to mark the historic day, Speaker Devin Cathchild said, Everyone needs to learn about the two-row and the nation-to-nation relationship it represents. It's not just for Native people, it's for non-Native people too. The gathering ended with a march as people carried a replica of the two-row wampum through the streets of the city. Those who commemorated the Royal Proclamation and the two-row wampum emphasized that the principles and practices that cemented the treaty relationship remain applicable today. The Royal Proclamation of 1763, in conjunction with the Treaty of Niagara of 1764, established the legal and political foundation of Canada and the principles of treaty-making based on mutual recognition and respect. A royal proclamation is also an important symbol. Issued at the highest level, it sends a message to all citizens about the values and principles that define a country. There is a need for a new proclamation that reaffirms the long-standing but often disregarded commitments between Canada and Aboriginal peoples. The proclamation would include an official disavowal of the Doctrine of Discovery and commitment to the full implementation of the United Nations Declaration. Call to Action, number 45. We call upon the Government of Canada, on behalf of all Canadians, to jointly develop with Aboriginal peoples a Royal Proclamation of Reconciliation to be issued by the Crown. The proclamation would build on the Royal Proclamation of 1763, and the Treaty of Niagara of 1764, and reaffirm the nation-to-nation relationship between Aboriginal peoples and the Crown. The proclamation would include, but not be limited to, the following commitments. 1. Repudiate concepts used to justify European sovereignty over Indigenous lands and peoples, such as the Doctrine of Discovery and Terra Nullius. 2. Adopt and implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples as the Framework for Reconciliation. 3. Renew or establish treaty relationships based on principles of mutual recognition, mutual respect, and shared responsibility for maintaining those relationships into the future. 4. Reconcile Aboriginal and Crown constitutional and legal orders to ensure that Aboriginal peoples are full partners in Confederation, including the recognition and integration of Indigenous laws and legal traditions in negotiation and implementation processes involving treaties, land claims, and other constructive agreements. The principles enunciated in the new Royal Proclamation will serve as the foundation from an action-oriented covenant of reconciliation, which points the way forward toward an era of mutual respect and equal opportunity. Calls to Action number 46. We call upon the parties to the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement to develop and sign a covenant of reconciliation that would identify principles for working collaboratively to advance reconciliation in Canadian society, and that would include but not be limited to 1. Reaffirmation of the party's commitment to reconciliation. 2. Repudiation of concepts used to justify sovereignty over Indigenous lands and peoples, 
such as the Doctrine of Discovery and Terra Nullius, and the reformation of laws, governance structures, and policies within their respective institutions that continue to rely on such concepts. 3. Full adoption and implementation of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples as the Framework for Reconciliation. 4. Support for the renewal or establishment of treaty relationships based on principles of mutual recognition, mutual respect, and shared responsibility for maintaining those relationships into the future. 5. Enabling those excluded from the settlement agreement to sign on to the Covenant of Reconciliation. 6. Enabling additional parties to sign on to the Covenant of Reconciliation. Government at all levels of Canadian society must also commit to a new framework for reconciliation to guide their relationships with Aboriginal peoples. Call to action number 47. We call upon federal, provincial, territorial, and municipal governments to repudiate concepts used to justify European sovereignty over Indigenous peoples and lands, such as the Doctrine of Discovery and Terra Nullius, and to reform those laws, government policies, and litigation strategies that continue to rely on such concepts. Churches and faith groups also have an important role to play in fostering reconciliation through support of the United Nations Declaration and repudiation of the Doctrine of Discovery. Calls to Action number 48 We call upon the church parties to the settlement agreement and all other faith groups and interfaith social justice groups in Canada who have not already done so to formally adopt and comply with the principles, norms, and standards of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples as a framework for reconciliation. This would include, but not be limited to, the following commitments. 1. Ensuring that their institutions, policies, programs, and practices comply with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. 2. Respecting Indigenous peoples' right to self-determination in spiritual matters, including the right to practice, develop, and teach their own spiritual and religious traditions, customs, and ceremonies, consistent with Article 12.1 of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. 3. Engaging in ongoing public dialogue and actions to support the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. 4. Issuing a statement no later than March 31, 2016, from all religious denominations and faith groups, as to how they will implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. 49. We call upon all religious denominations and faith groups who have not already done so to repudiate concepts used to justify European sovereignty over Indigenous lands and peoples, such as the Doctrine of Discovery and Terra Nullius. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademile. Audio engineering done by Anthony Rademile. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com. And music is done by Matt Rademile at radandkel.com.